This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Credo quid quid dixit de filios nil hoc veritatis verbo verius. That Latin passage is the end of the first stanza of St. Thomas Aquinas's Eucharistic hymn, Adoro Te Devote. In the beautiful translation of Gerard Manley Hopkins, whom the Scotists want to claim for themselves because of his teaching about Our Lady, the passage is, Godhead here in hiding whom I do adore, masked by these bare shadows, shape and nothing more. See, Lord, at thy service low lies here a heart, lost all lost in wonder at the God thou art. Seeing, touching, tasting are in thee deceived. How says trusty hearing that shall be believed? What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. If we reject the great war between poetry and philosophy, as we should, I dare say that we Thomas can claim Hopkins for the beauty of his understanding of Aquinas on truth. The task I've been given, and I say given because Father Legg simply gives one a title and says, talk, <laughs> is to talk about first truth, truth, and truths, analytic philosophy and Thomas Aquinas. From the very beginning of the philosophy workshop 10 years ago, I've been told what to speak about. Usually it's speak about X and analytic philosophy, where X ranges over whatever the topic of the workshop happens to be. It doesn't really matter what the X is, as the common denominator always seems to be and analytic philosophy. Father Legg, and before him, Father Thomas Joseph White, now the august rector of the Angelicum in Rome, may he rest in peace, <laughs> are like the character Linda Richman from Saturday Night Live in the skit Table Talk, played by Mike Myers who would in one sentence introduce a topic without any context or explanation and then command, discuss. I find this practice of these Dominicanes curious, since it seems to presume that I know something about analytic philosophy. I was even commanded once to speak on Aquinas and analytic philosophy as such, with the directive to explain just what analytic philosophy is. I'm proud to say that by the end of the talk, the audience was assimilated to my ignorance knowing less about analytic philosophy than they did coming in the door. The fact is I know an awful lot more about X, whatever X might be, than I do about analytic philosophy. So I'd much rather just talk about X, even when I know very little about X, as is usually the case. In fact, I'd much rather talk about X, even if no referring term is actually substituted into the variable. The difficulty, however, is that I'm an Irish Catholic which burdens me with at least two, at least two character flaws, guilt and the needle. The guilt needs very little explanation except to say that when the priest says, do X, I feel guilty if I do not do X. That does not mean that I am so clerical as to actually do X. <laughs> it just means I feel guilty when I don't do X, which is what I usually don't do. But even if I would be better off dead than speaking about analytic philosophy, here I'm being given an honorarium of $2 for my talk, and I want my $2. <laughs> the needle, however, needs a bit more explanation. 
The needle is that wicked Irish jab that we cannot help directing at those whom we most love, often at the dinner table, wakes, and weddings. For instance, one's father might with great irritation respond to his wife's complaints across the dinner table about his hearing with, my hearing's fine, I was tested at the doctor's office and they said it was fantastic. Then his son, immediately to his left, might say, without missing a beat or raising his head from his food, well then dad, if it isn't your hearing that's shot, it's gotta be your mind. <laughs> the father will begin to raise his hand for a good backhanded swack across the son's face until the smile overcomes him and he chuckles at how his young son has driven the needle right through his old eardrum. Basically, among the Irish, it is a rite of passage to give the needle to one's dad. One never gives it to one's sainted mother, however. By analogous extension, one can give the needle to a priest, but never a religious sister. So my typical approach to speaking here is to avoid actually discussing the topic as long as I possibly can. <laughs> until guilt overcomes me. You may have noticed by now that I've said almost nothing about first truth, truth, Thomas Aquinas, or analytic philosophy, except for truly swearing off knowledge of what the latter is. That will only last so long since ravaged by guilt, I feel the need to turn to the assigned topic and thus the needle. And I want my $2. In the needle stage, I try as hard as I can to discuss the topic in a way that maximizes the humor of the needle inserted into the ribs of the tender lambs you all call father. Those who have been here before will recall the elaborate scenarios I have constructed to try to kill off, in particularly gruesome ways, both Father Thomas Joseph White and Father Dominic Legg. Decapitation by a spy in a barn mauling and being consumed by a ferocious grizzly bear, and so on. The only reason Father Legg is here today is that the valiant Father Brent used his expert bowmanship to save him at the last moment from being bare breakfast. Father Brent doesn't know he did that, however, since he skipped my talk in which he was portrayed as doing so. See, now there's the needle thrust into Father Brent. We only do it to those whom we most love. I don't know the Irish word for resentment, but whatever it is, I suppose Nietzsche would say that in doing so, I'm engaged in it. That is the slave revolt of values. After all, at $2, I'm getting slave wages. But they have defeated me, these Dominicanas. Truth is no laughing matter. Ask the new natural lawyers. My typical scenarios, for gruesomely ending the lives of Father White or Father Legg involve lying. That is, intentionally speaking against the truth. They are what is known in the business as jocose lies, a joke that is premised upon deliberately speaking falsehoods as the premise for the joke. Thomas Aquinas was against such jokes, since one may never tell a lie under any circumstances for any reason. A lie violates the nature of speech, which is to communicate truth to speak truly or there's nothing true. For the new natural lawyers, a lie expresses a judgment acting against a basic human good, truthfulness, and in a kind of neo-Kantian way is a kind of irrationality. The thought that my jokes might be fundamentally irrational saddens me since I put so much thought into them. <laughs> Fortunately, another Dominicanus, Father Lawrence Dewan, may he rest in peace, reminds us that not all intrinsically evil acts 
are of the same gravity. Indeed, that some of them are not even mortally sinful, the, jo the jocose lie being his example. In the past, I have welcomed that consolation. That said, let us turn to a Dorote devotee and analyze the line I first quoted. Again, in Hopkins' translation, it is, truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. Note that the opening stanza of the poem is an expression of Aquinas' faith. As near as I can tell, it is in the context of his account of faith that Aquinas makes most use of the notion of first truth. Although he analyzes it at length in his disputed question on truth, as well as what you were asked to read for the workshop, I take it that my task here is to make sense of what he means by first truth. In part because first truth, as Aquinas understands it, is a notion utterly absent from the discussion of truth one finds in contemporary analytic philosophy. I will do so in relation to what he has to say about faith. Gazing upon the Eucharist, sight is deceived as to the true reality of what is present to Thomas. However, faith comes not by sight, but by hearing, as St. Paul tells us. So Aquinas affirms that he believes what he hears. He makes the affirmation of belief in what he has heard several more times throughout the poem, as when he says, on the cross thy Godhead made no sign to men, here thy very manhood steals from human ken. Both are my confession, both are my belief, and I pray the prayer made by the dying thief. And I am not like Thomas, wounds I cannot see, but I plainly call thee Lord and God as he. This faith each day deeper be my holding of, daily make me harder hope and dearer love. Notice what Aquinas does in this latter stanza. He gives expression to the three theological virtues infused by the gift of grace, faith, hope, and love. Of course, while hope and love are virtues of the will directed at God as the human end, faith is a virtue infused into the intellect as a kind of knowledge, understanding, indeed, wisdom. Thomas takes us back here to the very first article of the first question of the first part. So I'm doing a kind of, and uh, doing it that way, I'm doing a kind of hop, Hopkins-like alliteration. It's always fun to say the first article of the first uh, part of the, or sorry, the first question of the first part of the Summa Theologiae, where he asks whether any discipline is necessary in addition to the philosophical disciplines. He argues that yes, indeed, a discipline is necessary and that discipline is sacra doctrina. The question does not call into question the legitimacy of philosophy. It takes that for granted. If it calls into question anything, it is the legitimacy of revelation. Isn't philosophy enough for us? What Thomas is doing in the first question as a whole is engaging in a dialectic with the fathers of the church, as far back as Justin Martyr in the second century. I think that's right. How should we think about revelation in relation to the classical philosophical pursuit of wisdom? As opposed to Tertullian, Justin took the position that revelation provided the wisdom that the philosophers sought but could not find on their own. The philosophers, particularly those influenced by Plato, thought wisdom is the knowledge of the highest causes of things that allows one to put order into one's own life and the life of the world around one. Thus, wisdom was both a speculative and a normative, has both a speculative and a normative character, the knowledge that informs how one conducts one's life. 
Thomas joins in the patristic tradition there. What he argues throughout question one is that Sacra Doctrina bears the marks that the philosophers, particularly Plato and Aristotle, described as characterizing wisdom. But first, he must show in the first article that Sacra Doctrina is even necessary beyond the philosophical disciplines. It is necessary because wisdom is the speculative and practical discipline through which one goes about achieving one's end, which is to flourish as a human being. Flourishing as a human being involves a distinctly human union with God through intellect and will, a knowing, loving union with God and neighbor in God. But for it to be human flourishing, it cannot simply be imposed upon the human being extrinsically. To achieve the end, one must know it, will it, and act to pursue it. Then one's flourishing will genuinely be one's perfection as a human being. But philosophy has a difficulty in achieving this flourishing. It's very hard, takes most of a lifetime, and is full of errors. So that wisdom might be available to all, God in his mercy reveals the knowledge necessary to achieve the telos of human life, the wisdom sought by the philosophers, to know him, love him, and serve him in this life, and be happy with him in the next. Philosophers asked natural human questions that they could not answer or could not answer adequately. But truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. So God, through the tender mercies of his grace, provides the virtues necessary to achieve this knowing, willing union with God, the virtue of intellect, that is faith, and the virtues of will that are hope and love. Faith, then, is not an act of the will, a choice that one makes in the absence of knowledge leaping, as it were, into the dark, only to find light on the other side, the merit of which is precisely that we are willing to make the leap into the darkness. No, faith is a condition of the intellect, a knowing, not a willing. It is the habit of the knowledge of the highest cause of things and how to go about ordering our lives to know and love that highest cause. Faith is given expression in belief, Belief, for Thomas, is the operation of the habit of faith. Beliefs are judgments that proceed from the knowing that is faith. So in Thomas's terminology, you don't add anything to belief to make it knowledge. It's the expression of knowledge. That is why it is different from suspicion, opinion, and doubt. On the cross thy Godhead made no sign to men. Here thy very manhood steals from human ken. Both are my confession, both are my belief. And I pray the prayer made by the dying thief. What was that prayer animated by the thief's belief? His knowledge, the knowledge given expression before the visible manhood of Christ. To be remembered in paradise, to flourish with the invisible Godhead of Christ, who is the highest cause of all things. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Through him all things were made, and nothing was made without him. He is the light of the human race, and the darkness has not overcome it. It is here in the context of understanding the nature of belief as giving expression to the knowledge that is faith, that difficulties may arise in conjunction with some modes of thought in what people call analytic philosophy. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. We see in that line three occurrences of cognates of the word true, truth, truly, and true. We also see the notion of speaking with truly modifying it. 
a noun, truth, an adverb, truly, finally an adjective, true. If we, can turn to contemporary, if we turn to contemporary discussions of truth, it's the third use, the use of the adjective truth, that is typically of primary concern, with the second use truly of perhaps secondary concern, and the first use as used by Aquinas of no concern at all. To be sure, the contemporary accounts are concerned with truth, but not in the sense in which Aquinas is using it in the statement. They are concerned with the nature of truth as a property of propositions because they are primarily concerned with truth as adjective applied to propositions. Standard contemporary discussions of the nature of truth take it for granted by and large that truth is a property or attribute of propositions. Said otherwise, a property, or sorry, a proposition is the primary bearer of the property truth. What is the nature of this property that is exemplified by propositions? Well, typically there are three main theories about the nature of truth as a property of propositions, correspondence, coherence, and pragmatism. Of most interest to us here are the correspondence accounts, since they come closest to some things Aquinas has to say about the nature, about truth characterizing what Thomas sometimes calls enunciations, or judgments, or even propositions. Truth in that sense is what he in general calls truth of the mind. The correspondence theorists will move between asserting that truth consists in a correspondence of propositions to facts, or the satisfaction of a predicate by the referent of a noun, or perhaps simply a relation between a truth and a truth maker, whatever the nature of such a truth maker might happen to be on different occasions. It must be said, of course, that the truth maker position doesn't really give an account of the nature of truth insofar as it appeals to the nature of truth in the term truth maker. In any case, in that context, to speak of speaking truly is in the first place simply to say that what someone says gives expression to a true proposition. In the second place, one might ask normative questions about such truthful speaking. Should one always speak truly? What is not at all on the table is the idea that truth could speak. Truth speaks, that's just a badly formed sentence. Speech is the act of an intelligent being, a person. But persons aren't propositions, and thus cannot bear or exemplify the property truth. To speak of truth speaking truly can at best only be a metaphor, not a proper use of the term true, which would seem to fit well with its being said by Aquinas in a poem. Poets being known for their improper use of terms. Of course, in real life, by which I mean outside the philosophy classroom, or at least with the door to the classroom open. By the way, did you ever notice that you can get to say, that you get to say whatever you want in a philosophy class if the professor shuts the door? <laughs> Within the first five minutes of the first class of intro, you'll be pleasantly denying that you know who your father is. I always tell my students, don't come up to me at graduation because I'm gonna remind you of the day that you denied who you knew, that you knew who your father was. And it's not gonna be your father who's pissed off. It's going to be your mother. <laughs> anyway, in true life, we often do use the word true of objects that are not propositions. If you're a cyclist, you will at times go to the repair shop to have your wheel made true or put into true. If you are an archer like Father Brent, you aim to make your shot swift and true. If you are a student, you are given the charge to be true to your school. If you're a lover, 
by God in Terence Malick's Tree of Life. You have pledged yourself to be true to your beloved, no matter what comes. And your beloved, the mother in the film, made to your image, pledges in return that I will be true to you, no matter what comes. However, if you're a philosopher, particularly one who has a, had an introductory course in philosophy in almost any department of philosophy in the United States, including departments of philosophy in most Catholic and Christian institutions, you will likely not deny that truth and its cognates are used in these ways of objects that are not propositions. But what you will likely do is deny that these uses of the term true and its cognates are true uses of the term true. You will very likely say that any use of the term true that does not truly involve a property of propositions is merely metaphorical. And of course, we all know that merely metaphorical statements aren't literally true. All these uses of true that do not apply to propositions, if we are to say that it is okay to so speak, that is to utter truth here, involve maybe something like spiritual truth, which of course is not literal truth. It's like Rex Matram's spiritual reign. You remember the scene from Brideshead Revisited. Rex is taking instruction from a Catholic priest in order to become Catholic and marry Julia Marchmaid. He's progressing correctly, if somewhat rotely, through the priest's catechetical instructions. But then the priest asks him, what is the doctrine of papal infallibility? To which Rex responds, whatever the Pope says is true. Parenthetically, it would have been really funny if Rex had said, after all, truth himself speaks truly or there's nothing true. Well, I really screwed that one up. Truly, I could have done better. In any case, the priest says to Rex, well, what if the Pope says it's going to rain tomorrow? Rex responds, well, then it's going to rain tomorrow, Father. <laughs> the priest doesn't gasp, but merely sighs and takes a drag off his cigarette and says, but what if it doesn't rain tomorrow? Rex is puzzled and says, oh, I see what you mean, Father. That's a difficulty. After some thought, he smiles and says with great self-satisfaction, I've got it, Father. What the Pope meant was that it would rain spiritually, but that we are too blinded by sin to see it. Again, the priest sighs, now adding a wry grimace, and takes another drag off his cigarette. You see what's happened here. The effort by Rex to make his understanding of the doctrine of papal infallibility come out true at all costs pushes him to spiritualize truth into something that is not real, not factual, but meaningful and important. Interestingly, not, interestingly, the Gnostic effort to spiritualize the truth of scripture to make it come out true at all costs, though not literally or factually true, was at the heart of Augustine's battle with them. Okay. It was the reason behind his writing of his two commentaries entitled The Literal Interpretation of Genesis, where he defends the literal sense of Genesis, although not what we would now call the fundamentalist sense of Genesis. The seven days of creation in Augustine's hands are understood to be literally true. Thus, it's important to note that Augustine and Aquinas after him does not exclude the use of metaphors within literal statements about reality, statements about the way things are. I often challenge my students to spend the next 24 hours speaking about the world as they understand it to be actually and excluding all metaphors when they do so. You should try it too. See what happens. 
What I would like to do here is, in effect, defend the literal truth of the line from Aquinas' poem in the translation of Hopkins. Truth speaks truly, or there's nothing true. You won't understand what Aquinas writes about faith and belief, and thus consequently hope and love, unless he's speaking literally in his great poem. Yes, indeed. I think poetry can be literally true, as did Aquinas. In fact, I've often told my students that if they want a concise summary of Aquinas' overall thoughts about the truth of reality, they can do nothing better than to contemplate the truths about reality expressed in the Adorote. Horror of horrors, I've sometimes even set as a one-question final exam that the students write a commentary on the Adorote in light of Aquinas' thoughts on metaphysics, human nature, and ethics. I also want to defend the view that even though Aquinas does not exclude metaphors from literal statements, in this case, he is not using any metaphors in saying, truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true, except perhaps the word speaks. Very few philosophers would say that reality consists solely of propositions, although I'm sure there are some, probably idealists. So by and large, what it seems that we cannot truly say is the truth of reality. In the contemporary discussion of correspondence, whatever propositions are said to be related to in being true, in expressing the way things are, the relata are not and cannot be said to be true. The propositions might be said to be related to facts, odd entities that exist as abstract entities over and above substances and their accident. But those facts cannot be said to be true because on most accounts, they are not propositions. Whatever the truth makers are, even as they make true, they are not propositions and cannot be said to be true, except when the propositions are about other propositions. In other words, truth makers are not true truth makers. I had fun writing that line and it's delivering. I'm not as bad a writer as you might think. So I'll say it again because I love it. In other words, truth makers are not true truth makers. But by now, having listened to the valiant Father Brent and the Californian Dr. Fazer, you know that Aquinas distinguishes between the truth of being and the truth of the mind. And I should add Professor Doolin now, because there's an awful lot of overlap going on. Distinguishes between the truth of being and the truth of the mind. Truth as a predicate is coextensive with being as a predicate, although in its signification, what it adds to the notion of being is relation to intellect. A metaphor, according to Aquinas, uses an image or likeness taken from material realities to communicate a truth about reality, about the way things are, whether material or immaterial, in a way more suited to our mode of understanding. Talking to your son about quantum physics, and I would advise you to try sometime, talking to your son about quantum physics, you might say, light is both a particle and a wave. You could say, instead, that when considering the phenomenon of light, the appropriate mathematical functions to employ are both those employed in to analyze ballistic motion and those used to analyze wave motion, now interpreted as applying to light. Or you could just say that light is both a particle and a wave. Father Brent was a machine in working through Aquinas on truth and wisdom. You could say, instead, that Father Brent worked through Aquinas' text on truth and wisdom in a very methodical and deliberate way. Or you could say, Father Brent was a friggin' machine on truth and wisdom. <laughs> Green Bay destroyed the Bears yet again on Sunday. You could say, Green Bay scored 54 points to the Bears three on Sunday. 
where you could say the Bears stunk to high heaven once again against the Packers. The contrast here is not between literal truth and spiritual truth. It is between literal truths expressed in different ways to aid understanding. And interestingly enough, Aquinas argues in the first question of the Summa that to communicate divine wisdom, metaphorical language is the most appropriate language to communicate the literal truth, to communicate the way things truly are with respect to God, the highest cause of things. It's not the task of philosophers to clarify what God literally and truly says in scripture so that we can understand it, eliminating the metaphors. It's their task to listen, it's my task, to listen and learn like everyone else to what God metaphorically and truly says about himself and his relation to us as their only shot at salvation. Truth himself speaks truly where there's nothing true. But here in talking about truth, about the truth of the mind and the truth of reality, Aquinas is not employing images drawn from material reality to communicate the way things are with respect to being. He does, that, he does at one point employ a metaphorical image as an aid when he speaks of the world as if it's suspended between two intellects. The divine intellect that creates the world and the human intellect that understands the created world. He also employs a metaphor when he speaks of God's knowledge of the world as akin to the productive knowledge of an artisan. In being like the knowledge of an artisan, God's knowledge of the world is unlike our knowledge of it. Ours is that of a spectator grasping its intelligibility. God's is like that of an artist producing its intelligibility. God willingly knows into being realities other than himself, like a playwright. In doing so, he gives expression to intelligibility in the being of those realities. Through the word, all things were made. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. The Latin term race, which forms the root of our English term reality, is badly translated as thing. Aquinas explains that as a transcendental, it's coextensive with being or ends, but adds in its signification the notion of essential being, which means nothing other than intelligible being. Being is intelligible as such. Truth adds that intelligibility of being as such is related to intellect. Per se, if related to the divine intellect and per oxygens for any created intellect. Truth himself speaks truly or there's nothing true. Knowledge for Aquinas is a union of knower and known, an assimilation of the knower to the known or the known to the knower. When we come to know something in speculative knowledge, we are assimilated to the object of knowledge. The reality is the rule and measure of what we know. When God knows something other than himself, and we dare not say comes to know something other than himself, the object is assimilated to God's knowing of it. God's knowledge is the rule and measure of what it is. Now, God's own being is true with the truth of being, because intelligible and related to the divine intellect, knowing itself, or as Aristotle said in that wonderful phrase, self-thinking thought, thinking itself thinking. This is what Aquinas means by first truth. First truth is identified with God. That is not a metaphor. It's not a spiritual truth. God is first truth because truth itself, the intelligibility of being, or sorry, God is first truth because truth itself 
the intelligibility of being itself, knowing itself as intelligible to itself. Sorry. Even if God is the ultimate cause of all truths other than himself, in identifying him with first truth, we do not mean that he is the cause of all truth. In fact, I wish that the Latin were more often translated as primary truth than first truth, although that would be a bit of a loose translation. By first truth, we mean that he is the understanding of the intelligibility of being to itself. The truth of being and the truth of mind are here simply identical in both subject and object. There are no propositions here, no abstract entities that are the primary bearers of the predicate true. God, who is not a proposition, is the primary bearer of the predicate true. That is what Aquinas means by first truth, if I have understood him at all. But what then of propositional truth? Well, the closest thing to what contemporary philosophers mean by propositions as bearing truth in relation to a world that they are not identical to is what Aquinas calls judgments, the second act of the intellect or enunciations that give expression to those judgments. They say of what is that it is and what is not that it is not. They differ from what contemporary philosophers mean because they are not abstracta. They are actualities of the human mind in its distinctive operation of knowing truth. For interesting reasons too complicated to go into here, Aquinas thinks only living material beings think, living material beings think in propositions. Angels do not, and God certainly doesn't. Though both angels and God can and do know the truth of propositions. Such propositions are said to be true when they stand in a relation of adequation to the intelligibility of some being as it is. Notice adequation etymologically means to equality, which expresses the idea that a human judgment in truth is directed at and proceeds to a kind of equality with a thing other than itself. The human intellect in judgment becomes intelligibly what the object known is intelligibly. It becomes equal in intelligibility to what it knows, having not been equal to it, but potentially equal to it. What I like about this idea of the intellect being born to equality with the known is that it allows for growth or progress in the depth of that equality. One of the issues that I think has kept coming up um, in the discussion. However, it's important to be clear that the use of true applied to these propositions or judgments does not introduce a new special property that only propositions could bear. Insofar as propositions are actualizations of the mind in its knowing of the world, truth applied to them is nothing other than the truth of being we have already seen that applies to anything whatsoever that exists as being what it is for it to be, what it essentially is. The etymological roots of aletheia, the Greek word for truth, are the negative prefix a and lethe, just to forget. It suggests that something is actually as it appears to be. It's not hidden from view, not concealed, not forgotten, but manifest. The intelligible being of a proposition is simply to be the intelligibility of its object made manifest within the mind. A false proposition fails to manifest that intelligibility. So the truth of the mind is nothing other than the truth of being for the mind. As an aside, Aquinas' account here gives an answer to a problem raised by John McDowell for contemporary discussions of truth, the failure to provide an account of the normativity of truth. We think that truth is a good to be pursued. 
we ought to pursue it. Why? We could ask the question as Nietzsche asked, what really is this will to truth in us? In fact, we made a long halt at the question as to the origin of this will until at last we came to an absolute standstill before a yet more fundamental question. We inquired about the value of this will. Granted that we want the truth, why not rather untruth and uncertainty, even ignorance? It makes a lot more sense for me to continue to say, I will get up at sunrise, than for you to constantly and officiously tell me, John, the sun does not go around the earth. I know, but I don't care. However, in Thomas's account, for us, truth is an achievement of what we are. It's an excellence of living as humans. It is constitutive of our flourishing. In being truthful, we know and will our end. It was what we were born to. When we lie, we have failed as human beings, even if only venially. How much better a humorist would I be if I could make the truth funny? So what has all of this to do with first truth, truth, truths, Aquinas, and analytic philosophy? Both are my confession. Both are my belief, and I make the prayer made by the dying thief. In his discussion of, of faith, Aquinas points out that the object of the intellect is truth. Now, we have to disambiguate that a little. To use an example from Joseph Pieper in Happiness and Contemplation, consider drinking. And I know you're all familiar with that because I was here last night. We have the power to drink. The object of that power is to drink or an act, an act or operation of the power. But there's also the object drunk, the martini or Manhattan. You can't drink without a drink. There's a familiar ambiguity in saying the object of the intellect is truth. Sorry, there's a similar ambiguity. The truth of the mind is something you do. It's an actuality of the power of intellect in its second operation, which is judgment. The intellect becomes intelligible in that operation because it comes to be what it potentially is. That's like the drinking. But in that operation, what it attains is the intelligible being of the thing known, the oak tree or the beloved. That's like the drink drunk. So in saying the object of the intellect is truth, Thomas means both that the intellect attains its goal, which is the expression of a true judgment, and that through that judgment, it attains the true being of the thing known. However, Thomas goes on to claim that the object of faith as an infused intellectual habit is first truth. Now again, if we don't know what he means by first truth, that would have the ambiguity we just worked through. Is first truth supposed to be the first true judgment? Is it supposed to be some foundational proposition that needs to be believed first? Or perhaps it's a kind of metaphor and spiritual truth about the importance of the propositions given expression to in the operation of faith. No, Thomas goes on to explicitly identify first truth with God, which he had done elsewhere in the general discussions of truth. And as we have seen, even in his own account of metaphor, the identification of God with first truth is not a metaphor. God is the intelligibility of being itself to itself. And that is what we attain in the habit of faith, the drink that is drunk. 
Of course, Thomas goes on to explain that belief is the operation of the habit of faith in the intellect. Now consider the way in which belief is often discussed in much of contemporary philosophy. Belief is among the mental attitudes. In particular, it's an epistemic attitude rather than an affective or volitional attitude. The attitude that is belief relates us to a proposition. The object supposedly referred to in a that clause as in, I believe that two plus two equals four. I say supposedly because I agree with Arthur Pryor that it's absurd to think that when a statement is placed in a that clause, it takes on the function of a name. Be that as it may, that is how it is treated in much of contemporary philosophy. The statement in the that clause names a proposition that I am related to in the epistemic attitude of belief. In affective and volitional attitudes, we are often related to concreta like the pudding, or the beautiful woman with the red hair, or making love. But in the epistemic attitudes like belief, we are related to abstracta, like propositions. Even if it is held that propositions are not abstracted, but sentence token, tokenings or mental states, in belief, we are related to them. In that respect, we are only indirectly related to worldly beings, if at all, in belief, doubt, suspicion, and so on, because of the mysterious way that such propositions are related to worldly things, to worldly beings, if they are related at all. And this makes a certain amount of sense since there is in the discussion of truth in contemporary philosophy no place for the truth of being, the truth that would be attained by our mental states. If truth is the object of the intellect and there is no truth of being, it makes a certain amount of sense that in belief, as with the other epistemic attitudes, we could only ever truly relate to and attain a representation of being, not being itself. What I want you to take away from this very quick and sketchy criticism of an aspect of some very good contemporary analytic philosophy and its approach to truth and belief is that in faith, as a kind of knowing, we do not and cannot attain union with God as our end. In faith, God can only be represented to us, albeit truly, we hope. By contrast, if Thomas is right about the truth of being, and I think he is, in faith and its operation belief, we do in fact attain God as our end, however confusedly that attainment may be in this life. Godhead here in hiding whom I do adore, masked by these bare shadows, shape and nothing more. See, Lord, at thy service low lies here a heart, lost, all lost, in wonder at the God thou I am not like Thomas, wounds I cannot see, but I plainly call thee Lord and God as he. This faith, each day deeper be my holding of, daily make me harder hope and dearer love. Finally, in discussing the operation of faith, which is belief, Thomas distinguishes three senses of belief, two of which pertain to the intellect, cratere deum and cratere deo. Cratere deum is the material object of faith and involves believing that God is such and such and believing God, sorry, and believing that God is such and such. The beliefs that are proposed to us to believe. Here, if anywhere, we have propositions as intellectual judgments expressing what it is that we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and so on. Cratere Deo is the formal object of faith, 
the medium through which we believe the propositions that are proposed to us to believe. This formal object of faith is to believe God. And Aquinas explicitly says it is first truth. The formal object of faith is first truth, God, and it is to believe God, not a proposition. Of course, here as elsewhere, we don't want to set form against matter. What he means is that believing God provides the intelligibility for our believing the propositions about, which, about God that we do believe. We believe God, and that what's make, that's what makes our beliefs intelligible to us as knowledge. Consider a parallel. Father Dominic Schlegg, who was raised on a commune of hippies in the Pacific Northwest, outside of Seattle by the Californians who joined the great hippie migration of the 1970s, from California to the Northwest to make wine, smoke weed, and practice free love. His friends on the commune call him the Schlegmeister, and he always refers to himself in the third person. One day, walking around the commune with his mother, the Schlegmeister says to her, Mom, who is the Schlegmeister's father? She responds, that guy over there. This fact is, of course, something only the Schlegmeister's mother could know with any immediate knowledge. Not even the Schlegmeister's father can know it, except in the way the Schlegmeister himself knows it, that is, on his mother's word. They believe her. This faith they dearly hold. The matter of their faith is that this man is the, the matter of their faith is that this man is the Schlegmeister's father. But what makes that faith intelligible as knowledge is that they believe her. She is the formal object of their faith. And that believing her is not in turn reducible to believing a proposition. As if one were to say that believing her is the result of believing the proposition that she is the Schlegmeister's mother. On the contrary, the Schlegmeister believes the proposition, believes that she is his mother, because he believes her. The form gives intelligibility to the matter. What is important here is that this believing God, in the case of religious faith, is a condition of the intellect by which we are related to God as first truth. And believing God is not reducible to a belief that God is God. We believe that God is God because we believe God. Believing God makes intelligible our believing that God is such and such in the various truths that we believe as a matter of fact. And believing God is what constitutes these beliefs as knowledge. In faith, we are immediately related to God, which enables our intellectual operations to be beliefs, that is to be true knowledge of God. These truths that we believe are not what we are related to in faith, they give expression within us to that which we are related to in faith. What remains to be said about belief and first truth in the third sense of belief that Thomas distinguishes will by and large have to remain to be said elsewhere and at another time. Suffice it to say that it involves believing in God as first truth, a condition of the will, not intellect, whereby we direct our will to God as our end. One result of this distinction of a third sense is that you can believe God without believing in God. Just like you can believe your wife without believing in your wife.
Thomas, as usual, literally says best what believing in God means. Jesus, whom I look at shrouded here below, I beseech thee, send me what I thirst for so. Someday to gaze on thee face to face in light and be blessed forever with thy glory's sight. Discuss. Thank you.